According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, picking up where we left off, we're going through Paul's credentials, the things that, uh, you know, he would boast about if he was that kind of guy. Um, but he's not that kind of guy, so he's not going to boast about it. In fact, none of us should boast about anything. That uh, if we think we can have confidence in the flesh or boast in our credentials, how smart we are, how much money we have, how handsome we are, whatever it is, if we think we can uh, brag about what we've got to offer, uh, we got the wrong idea. Um, God's not interested in what we bring to the table or what we can offer. God works in and through us, and he actually picks the foolish things to shame the wise, the things that are not, that he can nullify the things that are. So boasting is a, is a useless exercise. But for the sake of argument, he walks us through it, and uh, so we're going to go through it and see all the uh, details of what it was that if he was that kind of guy, uh, he, could, uh, he could be boasting about. So before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and his faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this evening and the truth of your word, the blessing we have to assemble together. And we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding. Bless us with the truth of your word this evening. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Let's take a moment for Q&A. If we have some questions, microphone runner is ready to go and Bill's not here tonight, so we won't give him our first question. We'll give Kevin the first question. We'll go with that. The uh, the last couple of classes we had in Philippians, you were talking about the uh, circumcision uh, and the shadow and the reality of it, the spiritual circumcision. I was curious why you never went into Colossians 2.11 because that seemed to be the one that really clarified it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably should have. There you go. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, there you go. Great verse. All righty. <laughs> Thank you for that. There's really no good answer for that other than I don't know why I got left out. There, there, there have been things, that was un, totally unintentional, there have been things, because we do have Colossians coming up, I mean there have been things that I know in the back of my mind I think, well we can, we can put that off until later, or it's going to come up in Ephesians, or it's going to come up in whatever. So there have been occasions where that kind of thing has happened, but that, not the case this time. It's just oversight on my part that should have had that, should have had that verse in there. Yeah. All right, other questions? What year was Adam born? Well, Archbishop Usher says 4004 B.C. That's right, and I don't hold to that date. But um, You might be praying. Uh, there's a, a, a fellow that I met named Nathan, and uh, he's been doing some research on the Septuagint and on the Masoretic 
manuscripts and uh, just met him yesterday and uh, on email. We've exchanged about four emails now at this point, plus some Facebook messages, and now we're connected as Facebook friends. So uh, anyway, he's not a pastor, but he's thinking, I don't know, maybe, maybe he'll end up being a pastor one of these days, as much homework as he does, as much study as he does. So um, anyway, I'm praying for him, and we'll see what the Lord wants to do with him on that. But uh, he's done some great work on uh, the Septuagint and why those numbers in Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 are better than the Masoretic Hebrew numbers. And it's uh, something that I've held to for years and years anyway, and Pastor Cliff has held to. But we've had different reasons for why we've held to those numbers. And, uh, and so I was, I was kind of interested to watch it. He made a YouTube video and had some things there about it. So um, anyway, so you just if you think about it, pray for Nathan Hoffman is his name, and uh, that uh, the Lord will bless his research and that all, uh, he and I will get to know each other better. And, uh, and then who knows, whatever else, uh, whatever else may happen on that. So keep that before the Lord too. Okay, any other questions tonight? going to be an easy night then. All right. Um, oh, one thing that did come by email centers on First uh, Peter 5. And this is the passage where it says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. So First Peter 5 verses 1 through 4 and, and the term lording it that appears in verse 3. Um, this is uh, Peter's exhortation to his fellow elders and the exhortation is given that, you, that these elders are uh, supposed to be faithful, they're supposed to shepherd, uh, they're supposed to exercise oversight. And so you've got all three terms. You've got the pastor with shepherding, you've got the overseer who's supposed to exercise oversight, and you've got the elder. That's how it starts. He's speaking to the elders. And so in the process of this, he says, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And so clearly if you're in it for the money, then you're not a shepherd, you're a hireling, and that's a problem. And it's got to be eagerly, uh, voluntarily, because God loves the cheerful giver, not grudgingly or under compulsion. And then when it says, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. And that's the phrase, allotted to your charge. And so we realize that every sheep is a sheep, but also every sheep is a sheep that has been allotted Every sheep is an allotment, if you will. Uh, it's like the language of drawing lots or casting lots or, or when the lot falls for your inheritance and your land grant and whatever, things like that. So where the, where the lot falls, where the allotment falls is, is not really our business, it's, it's God's business. Uh, because those allotted to your charge, uh, the shepherd is not the allotter. He's the one that's going to be faithful with every sheep that's been allotted to him. Really, the, the one that does the allotting is Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. So he, he puts people where he wants them for his good pleasure, and he moves people from flock to flock and, and does things of that nature. But the, the fact is, those allotted to your charge then is the primary criteria for uh, who's my pastor? What church should I be in? You know, well, the real question is, who have I been allotted to? And then the rest of it just kind of answers itself as far as, as, far as that goes. Now a question that came in by email, and it's very perceptive actually, um, what happens when the husband and wife disagree? What happens when the wife says, well I haven't been allotted to his charge, and, uh, and I, I think I've been allotted to this other charge over here, I think, uh, and then the husband says, well no you haven't because I've been allotted to this charge here. So what happens then if you have a, uh, a, uh, a divided house? Okay. Well, Jesus said something about that, didn't he? <laughs> okay. A house divided against itself shall not stand. And so um, 
There's several ways that you can answer this, but but functionally, I would start by going to First uh, Timothy, going to First Corinthians, showing that the role uh, when the when the woman does not understand, the first thing she's supposed to do is go home and ask her husband. All right, and that's the primary benefit of uh, being together in a local assembly, and that, so that if there is a question. Uh, the woman doesn't challenge the pastor, the woman asks her husband, and then he answers her question, and if there's something that has to be brought to the pastor, then the husband brings it to the pastor, and there's the pattern there. You know the pastor I'm talking about in, in 1 Corinthians, let her ask her husband, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So uh, that's a, a, with that as a paradigm, and then I think also with Jesus' teaching on uh, a house divided against itself cannot stand, my theory, my c- conviction when I look at this verse, uh, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, my conviction is that Jesus Christ isn't that stupid. That he would not, he's not going to allot a husband to this church and a wife to this church and then drive a wedge within that marriage or, or send those people apart. Okay, And so uh, in the cases where I've seen over the years, I mean going back to junior high, going back to grade school, um, I've, I've seen this, I've been exposed to different things where um, the, the woman stomps her foot and says, he's not my pastor, I'm going over here. This person's my right pastor teacher. And they tried to apply the kernel theme doctrine on right pastor teacher, right congregation. And um, anyway, and, and ended up destroying marriages on the basis of right pastor teacher, right congregation. So um, my conviction is, is and, and different pastors teach it similar or even go further than I do, um, my conviction is that Jesus Christ is going to allot the same shepherd to both the husband and the wife so that he is promoting unity within that marriage. And that's what he's designed it to be. Okay? Other pastors have gone even further and, and they, you know what their conclusion is? Their conclusion is, is that Jesus doesn't allot any wife. He only allots the husband to the shepherd and then the wife is responsible to be in subjection to her husband. And so uh, that's, again, I don't think you can prove either way but both would be consistent with with First Peter five three in uh, in that regard. Did you have a, a question on that or comment? He's not the author of confusion. That's correct. Yeah, and that's another good passage too. Another principle that you would apply. Since he's not the author of confusion, but of peace, then uh, what what would build that harmony within the marriage, within the family, and so forth? So uh, anyway, so that was a good email question. I appreciated that. And we talked about it too on Wednesday morning a week ago with some of the men that meet on Wednesday mornings. And uh, I know I wanted to follow up with that here tonight. So, All right, well then let's go to uh, Philippians and pick up with what we're looking at here. Confidence in the flesh. And by the way, every time we're reading confidence here, uh, the expression is one of boasting. Okay, The Greek word is for boasting. And so... Um, we glory or we boast in Christ Jesus and we don't boast in the flesh. Even though I myself might have confidence or might boast even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And so when it comes right down to it, if anybody is going to boast in their human credentials, Paul will be first in line. And uh, nobody else that had half a mind to do what he's about to do they can't measure up to him anyway, so stop wasting your time. That's the, uh, that's the point. So, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day 
of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And so these are his credentials. And it's not the only place where he lists many of these things, but these are the ones that he lists here. And then verse 7, he throws it all away. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I count as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And that's what we'll get into when we talk about the the, the re-evaluation uh, in our profit and loss statement, when we take everything that would that some people would count as a profit, and we just move it over to the loss category and say, nope, all of that's uh, all of that's a loss. We're uh, we're only accepting what Jesus imputes to our account. So, this is point four in the outline. Then, as uh, if you've been keeping notes, if there's any saint, Old Testament or New Testament saint, who could boast in the flesh, it would be uh, Saul of Tarsus could outboast any Old Testament saint. And uh, the Apostle Paul can outboast any New Testament saint, and, uh, and he's got both sides covered as far as that goes. All right, uh, he can outboast them all uh, related to that. It's like uh, back in my days as a waiter, we'd have contests for uh, for who uh, who sold the most strawberries during strawberry season at uh, Coco's Restaurant when we had strawberry season every year, and uh, and there was a hundred dollar prize for the for the number one seller, and the manager was personally guaranteeing it, and he had a a prize for the day shift, and he had a prize for the evening shift, and I did everything I could to win both prizes. That was the pulling double shifts and working days, working nights, and uh, and almost did it one year. In any event, Paul could win the day shift prize and the night shift prize. He could win Old Testament saint, New Testament saint. When it comes to boasting in the flesh, uh, no one outdid him. No one outdid him. He was advancing beyond many of his contemporaries, many of all of his peers. And uh, the aspects there. So uh, we have the the testimony to this in Philippians three, Second Corinthians eleven, Acts twenty two, Acts twenty three, Acts twenty six. He keeps going back to the same thing over and over again because he, like the hymn, I love to tell the story. Right? I love to tell the story because it's a story of grace. It's a story that that we can't boast in, but God can boast in. So we've read already the verses here related to this verses four, five, and six. Uh, real briefly then, let's grab 2 Corinthians 11. I know we read these on, we didn't get to the Acts verses, but we read uh, Corinthians on Sunday. Let's look at them again. I think this too is is part of the testimony, I think, that Philippians is written first, and then 2 Corinthians was written after that, because this boasting seems to be an expansion of what he'd already kind of opened the door with in, in Philippians, and he goes beyond the fact that he's Jewish and starts to boast into his Christian boasting as well. So um, in, Acts, uh, in 2 Corinthians eleven eighteen, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. And uh, since you, know, you guys love this kind of thing, you'll put up with it. And then uh, he says in verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. You know, um, and and it almost is taunting. It's almost childish. It's almost like the kids on a playground with, "I know you are, but what am I?" You know, he says, uh, "So am I. So am I. So am I." And um, are the and then he goes beyond the Jewish boasting. So it's like everything in Philippians is encapsulated right there in verse twenty-two 
of 2 Corinthians 11. Then he goes past that. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. Because all the Jewish boasting in the world, none of them are servants of Christ. In their legalism, they're servants of themselves. But in the New Testament reality now, he says, okay, we can boast on this side of things too. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. And all of these things he's listing as church age credentials, things to be boasting in. And here too, he's going to brush them off and say, apart from such external things, verse 28, there is daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my becoming weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And so he's the weakest guy in the church. He's the weakest guy in a dozen churches because he's sharing the weakness of all those churches. So if I have to boast, I'll boast of what pertains to my weakness. And this is really church-age boasting here. This is the boasting for a New Testament saint on the New Testament side of things. The the Old Testament didn't have anything like it. Uh, Believers in the Old Testament, they were not baptized in union with Christ. They They were not mystically in union with one another in a corporate body. You know, they were, they just happened to be, you know, fellow believers in, in whatever Jew or Gentile context they were in. And, uh, and even if, you know, you had a, a Jewish believer from the tribe of Benjamin and a Jewish believer from the tribe of Naphtali and a Gentile believer from Babylon or whatever, they were all saved. They all had eternal life, but none of them were members one of another. None of them were mystically united together in a corporate body that didn't, that didn't exist until the church. And so the idea that a, a believer could be weak, yeah, they could be weak, but their fellow believer was not going to be weak with them, was not going to identify with them. It's not like when one member suffers, they all suffer. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice. So you understand what I'm saying? Am I making sense? That what we take for granted today in the body of Christ didn't exist in the Old Testament. And so this kind of boasting wouldn't be possible in, uh, in an old te- for an Old Testament saint related to that. Um, all right, so that's, uh, those are the two examples there for an Old Testament saint, for a New Testament saint. And then in the different trials here, in these chapters here in Acts 22, 23, 26, we have these statements. And more background, and these are little glimpses. You have to really put them all together to get the whole picture. In Acts 22, when he's standing in this first uh, defense, before the mob, if you will, um, and we can even back up to the end of chapter 21. So uh, in verse 37, so 2137, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? And you're not, uh, you know, when somebody speaks to you in Greek and it just, uh, didn't know you knew Greek, okay. And uh, you speak Greek then, okay, then you're not the uh, Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness, okay. Paul says, nope, not me, <laughs> okay. But, but curious though, isn't it? I mean, what was the centurion expecting? What was this official expecting Given the uproar, given the 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 uh, how furiously they wanted Paul dead, clearly he's got to be public enemy number one. He's got to be the worst, you know, bandito that ever come along. Paul says, "Nope, that's not me." He says, "I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city." 
And uh, so he's a Roman citizen, and this is his background. And yes, he's fluent in Greek. He's very Hellenized, uh, as anyone would be, uh, born in, in Tarsus. I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And so when he'd given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and uh, when there was a great hush, I wish I could do that, just motion with a hand and just hush. Yeah. President Trump did that a couple weeks ago. He just said, hush. And the person hushed. <laughs> and uh, then he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. He spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, brethren and fathers, and so we're going to talk about the Hebrew dialect here shortly. Uh, brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And, uh, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. So even though he was born there, he got here as fast as he could, right? He was born in, in Tarsus, but his parents brought him, probably as a young child, probably at four or five, very young age, because they recognized this kid's genius, and he needs to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. You don't get into that school just automatically, all right? But uh, he, had the, he had the chops to get there, and they, they took him there. And uh, so born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly, according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So it's slightly amusing, in fact, that the very zeal, the very attitude <laughs> that, that he can boast in that he can say, yep, that's part of my past, right? It's the same kind of zeal now that wants him dead. <laughs> it's the same kind of zeal now that views him as the enemy, that now in their pride, in their arrogance, they, uh, they're directing against him. And so uh, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way, that's what Christianity was called at first, was called the way. As Jesus says, the way, the truth, and the life. And that uh, followers of the way, uh, most of them were Jewish to start with, but they realized that, uh, that there was a whole new stewardship that was being unveiled, and, and uh, they called themselves the way. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. So everything they're doing to him right now, he's been there, done that. As also, in fact, he's done more than they did. As also, the high priests and all the council of the elders can testify, if they're willing to do so. They probably don't want to talk about it. Uh, but if they were honest, they would back him up on this. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Now, that is completely illegal. That violates Roman law. He's crossing uh, province boundaries. He's going from uh, Judea to Damascus, totally, uh, and to, to take to take uh, you know a Jew from Damascus and bring him back to Jerusalem to put him in a Sanhedrin trial is uh, is tremendously uh, wrong under Roman law, and the Roman uh, governor would have uh, several things to say about that. Um, in any event. So the letters that he had, uh, if, if he was to lay them before the Roman officials, uh, would, would get the Sanhedrin in trouble. 
in any event. But here's a, here's a testimony to his zeal. And these guys that he's preaching to, they haven't gone that far. Okay? They had to wait for Paul to come all the way back to Jerusalem for them to arrest him. You know, not like they tracked him down to Corinth or Athens or Illyricum or any of those places. All right. And then with that as his background, then he goes into the circumstances that while I was on my way there to conduct murder um, is when I saw the light. And he tells the story of, of that. Um, he tells the story again in the next chapter in Acts 23. And in uh, 23 6. And here he's. Uh, this is curious too. Um, so in 23 1, looking intently at the council, he said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And that's curious. In a Jewish context, he could make that statement. I don't think he could make that statement in a church context. Because in a church context, I think he, he does regret much, in, much of his past. And he talks about how he acted ignorantly in unbelief and, and things there. But to these guys, hey, my conscience is clear. I'm, I'm found blameless under, under your law. Um, and then the high priest uh, smacks him. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul said to him, God is going to strike you you whitewashed wall, do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And this is where Paul says, oh, didn't know. I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he wouldn't have done that had he known. That's when he knows he's in trouble. And so verse 6, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. Now he knows he's got a wedge. Now he knows he can get out of this. Paul began crying out to the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And so that's his mother and his father, possibly even the next generation beyond that, since it's Pharisees plural. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And of course that's a big wedge issue between Sadducees and Pharisees. So as he said this, there occurred a dissension between Pharisees and Sadducees. The assembly was divided because the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection for an, nor an angel nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so because of this great big uproar uh, this, uh, this allows him to, uh, to get out of this particular trial. Moves on to his next one. So there's, uh, there's his background there. That he's a Pharisee, that he's a son of Pharisees. So it's not just as if mom and dad were very devout and they wanted him to do something that they couldn't do themselves. They too had graduated from the Pharisee school. They too were, were, uh, were members of this party. Okay? And they're going to bring their son up now to go beyond anything they even dreamed of. All right. Uh, then in chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. All right, now he gets to talk to Agrippa, and uh, he's happy to be there, actually. He says in verse 2, In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. 
So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. So they know who he is. They know who his parents are. They know who his rabbi was. They know he's legendary among these schools. You know, it's you can't imagine as much as they as much as they thrived in their academic achievement in their in and and so forth. A student like Saul of Tarsus, he made a name for himself. He made a name for himself at the martyrdom of Stephen. He's the one that held the robes. Yeah, he's the one that was sent with the commission. He was the he was the uh, he was the ravening wolf that we're going to see. Uh, among the Pharisees. And so they, they all know who he is, and which is why they hate him all the more. Because for a guy like that to renounce Judaism and to, to name the name of Christ is, uh, is, uh, is unthinkable. So he has to die quicker than anything as far as they're concerned. So you know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Str- harder to be a Pharisee than to be a Sadducee or to be an Essene or to be one of the other, uh, the other groups, the, uh, the uh, Sicarii or what do they call those? The, the Zealots. More zealous than the Zealots. If you can out-zealot the Zealots, that's uh, pretty good and the, and the Pharisees did. So now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And uh, he says, hey, I'm standing on the Scriptures. This is the same thing our fathers stood for. If you want to search the Scriptures, you're welcome to. So these are the little glimpses of the things he could boast in, of the strictest sect, number one in his class, advancing beyond his his contemporaries. And so... um, when you get down into the same chapter, there's, he gives more details in uh, so it talks about the hope of our fathers, verse seven, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. Notice twelve tribes, so none of them are missing. That mythology of the ten lost tribes is stupid, okay. As they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you if God raises the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And um, this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also... When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That phrase right there, underline that, mark that right there, 26.10. Because not every member of the Sanhedrin was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. All right, To be eligible to be a voting member, that's extraordinary. And at his age especially, extraordinary. And, uh, and by the way, he had to have been a married man to be a voting member of the Sanhedrin. So... Uh, all the circumstances of his divorce, uh, he never mentions in uh, in the in any of his writings. But I think it's clear. We talked about this in First Corinthians seven that he was a single man that uh, had not always been a single man in uh, in the application there. All right, and so I punished them. I cast my vote against them as I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. 
Alright, so they, here's what he can boast in. And he can outdo everybody. Now, as far as the details are concerned, we start with circumcised the eighth day. Circumcised the eighth day indicates that Saul was born into an observant home. An observant home. That is, they followed the law, they observed the customs, they practiced the rituals. An observant home. If a Jewish family was not observant, then they were typically called dogs. They were called Gentiles. They were called sinners. All right? That you might as well be a Gentile since you're such a sinner. You're not observant. And uh, this is what Jesus had to deal with when they accused him of eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and, and so forth. Born into an observant home. And uh, we've already read Philippians 3.5, Acts 23.6. A couple of other passages I think that go well with this include 2 Timothy 3.15 and Galatians 2.16. Other passages where he gives little glimpses and he gives little hints about his own childhood, as it were. But when you're born into an observant home, that means you've got a head start. That means before you're old enough to know better, you're already being saturated with um, customs, practices, traditions, um, you realize, you know what, our family uh, is different from other families. You know, we, we go to church on Sundays. We do, you know, we do things differently. We pray before we eat. And, uh, you know, it's just shocking when you first get exposed to things. You're over at a friend's house and, and, and they didn't pray before they ate. And, uh, and you, didn't, you were afraid to, to eat anything because nobody had prayed yet. And, and you realized, oh, this is, not a, this is not a Christian home or this is not a home where they, they pray before they eat. And you realize they do things different here than they do in my home kind of a thing. So there's a benefit to that. There's an absolute benefit to that. And I thank God for that. 2 Timothy 3.15, when he's talking to Timothy, because this is how Timothy grew up. From childhood you have known the sacred scriptures. How do you know scriptures before you're saved? I think God's common grace exposes you to them when you're sanctified by believing parents. 2 Timothy 3.15 So when he says um, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, uh, things are going to get worse, but you however continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood. And so there's value. There's, there's value in a young person's life as they're exposed to these things. As they're growing up in a, in a, in a, in a biblical home. As uh, they're, they're saturated with traditions and they, and they they uh, they observe these things. See, no, no, don't get me wrong. It doesn't save any kid. No kid is automatically saved because their parents are saved. But there is a benefit and an advantage that even longer than your waking memory, uh, you've always been a part of a of a Christian home, and so uh, you come to learn the scriptures, and you learn the Bible verses, and you learn the songs, and you learn the practices, and you learn, you know, how to do church. <laughs> you just you learn the culture. And then the gospel is preached and you realize, oh wait a minute, I need to trust Christ if I'm going to be a part of this family for real. See? And that's what it's about. And so when we see this, when Paul talks about this, from childhood you have known, think about this, is he, he's talking, I think, he, I think 
he's, yes, he's addressing Timothy and Timothy's specific circumstances, but might there not also be a, a reflection for his own childhood? If he, if he was a Pharisee and the, and the child of Pharisees, what kind of home did he grow up in? Hey, if your mom is a Pharisee and your dad is a Pharisee, wow, talk about tough parents. <laughs> okay, you know, get a little bit of a break maybe if mom's a Sadducee or something. I mean, come on. But if they're both Pharisees, wow, you cannot play one off against the other because those two are both going to outdo each other in, in keeping you strict. See, so when, from childhood you've known this. I think to me it's clear. It is, it is unthinkable that Paul was not saved in his youth, that he was steeped in this from his youth, that the Damascus Road was not the event of his salvation, it was the event of his conversion from Old Testament to New Testament saint in, uh, in the realities there. All right, so we have that clue. And then Galatians 2.16, when Paul talks about getting saved. Galatians 2.16 and then a verse even earlier than verse 16 um, where he talks about being saved. Uh, along with 2.16, I would include uh, 1.15. 1.15, where we talk about his salvation. But in Galatians 2, verse 15, it says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. You remember this? We taught this in the Galatians class. This is Paul rebuking Peter. And he's saying, how did you and I get saved, Peter? We got saved by grace through faith. And... uh they got saved. It's the, they got saved. The only way you can get saved, and so it was a rebuke on Peter who tried to get legalistic uh, with the Judaizers and was hypocritical about it. All right. Remember back in chapter one, there are three things that are mentioned here, and there's some boasting in this verse too. Uh, uh, Galatians one thirteen. You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. You see, this is what happens when you're still in school, but you're, you're already, uh, you know, you're, in, you're an undergrad, but they're giving you assignment as if you're a grad student. Or, uh, you know, you're a high school student, but they're, they're treating you as if you're, uh, you're a PhD already. And it's like Daniel. He graduated school and he was better than, than all the, the wise guys that had been on the job for decades. And so here he is advancing beyond many of his contemporaries, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. How do you, how do you outdo a, a zealot? You become an extreme zealot. And how do you outdo the extreme zealot? You become more extremely zealous for the ancestral traditions. Okay, and it looks to me like you know, he's multiplied this three times over. But when God, and notice, God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and God who called me through his grace, that's his salvation right there, his physical birth, his spiritual birth, then he was pleased to reveal his son in me. Third event. The Damascus Road was the third event, and it was not his salvation event. 
The salvation event was the second event there. Called me through His grace. Was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. This is His calling as a church age apostle. His calling to go from being an Old Testament saint to a New Testament saint. All right, more things to boast in. So circumcised the eighth day indicates that Paul was born into an observant home. So boasting in the flesh, he started at birth. All right, started on day eight. He was law observant. And then we have a triple expression here. Nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews. We have a Trinitarian expression of superlative Jewish character. A Trinitarian expression of superlative Jewish character. And uh, these are all the political requirements and racial requirements that human beings like to boast in. Human beings will boast in them and human beings will will, uh, assign these for um, discrimination racism, uh, hatred, things of that nature. When, uh, when human beings decide that they're going to be uh, uh, arrogant against people of other races or other tribes or other uh, cultures. And that's what we have here. The nation, the tribe, the culture. Okay? Uh, or language. When you can think of the linguistic element of Hebrew of the Hebrews. But nation of Israel, that's curious because they're not actually a nation uh, at the time that he's saying this. Uh, They are a subject people under the bonds of Rome. Of the tribe of Benjamin, identifying with his tribe. And and it's curious too when when we start boasting about that, uh, clearly uh, we're all Americans and so that means we're better than everybody else that's not an American. And and that's that's the the natural boast of, of humanity. But then within us, clearly, uh, Texans are, you know, the cream of the crop uh, above, you know, Americans that are not Texans, okay, and in, uh, in aspects there. <laughs> That's our tribalism in, uh, in that. But you see, this is, this is what happens, okay? And, and it's, it's, it's fun to joke about, and we can have good humor about it and whatever, and clearly... Uh, every state in the country has the neighboring state that they pick on, right? Uh, Texas picks on Oklahoma constantly, right? don't, don't they? That's what I've learned anyway. Uh, or Arkansas. It always tends to be a neighboring state. Washington, we always picked on Oregon because Oregon had the chip on their shoulder. Oregon was the Pacific, not quite Northwest. And, you know, it was uh, Portland was always jealous because it was never as big as or as good as Seattle kind of a thing. Oregon was never not quite, you know. Uh, and Oregon was always, you know, their little sour grapes, you know. It was called the Oregon Trail after all. It wasn't the Washington Trail. It was Oregon Territory after all. Oregon became a state before Washington became a state. Anyway, they're a bunch of losers. They know it uh, as, far as, as far as that goes. The main benefit to Oregon is it just gets more distance between California. That's the, that's the whole point. You want to keep those Californians from coming too far north. <laughs> and these are things that we can joke about with good humor or we can uh, not joke about them with some bad humor or with some racism or some, some um, uh, prejudice, okay? with some uh, hostility. 
all right? And particularly when you're totally into the carnal realm of things, then you become out and out racist over uh, your culture and 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 the uh, you know primitive nature of the barbarians. And, and think about it: God designed a system whereby there were Jews, and everything else that wasn't a Jew was called a Gentile. Okay, and there was nothing racist about that. There was not one thing racist about that. The, the point was was that the Jews were God's people, the stewards of His word, so that they could bless the non-Jews, that they could be the instruments of God's blessing to the ends of the earth. In you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. But what did the carnal Jews do with that? Oh, we're the chosen people. We're the better people. We're the special people. And you're the Gentile dogs. Okay? And that's what happens there. And But what's curious to me is, that, so this is by God's design, what happens to all the other cultures? They did the same thing. You had Greeks and then everybody that wasn't a Greek, what were they called? Barbarians, that's right. <laughs> and then you have the Romans and everybody that wasn't a Greek or a Roman, barbarians. Yeah, they just kind of, they grafted themselves into the Greek arrogance. All right. And then, uh, but, but the Persians did the same thing. Uh, and and these, that's what these cultures do. Every culture will do this. Okay. And so that kind of creates the us versus them kind of a thing. Actually, Alexander was genius in what he did because, you know, ultimately speaking, the, the Macedonians didn't like the Athenians didn't like the Corinthians, didn't like the Dorks or the Ionics. I mean, there was all these different clans within the Greeks, but he was able to point to the Persians and say, no, 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 those guys are the bad guys. The Persians are the bad guys. We're all Greeks after all, or Macedonians, <laughs> as the case may be. But we speak Greek, we're Hellenists, and, and so he forged a unity among all of the, uh, he made a, a larger us to band together blended all their dialects together into a Koine Greek, and then went to war against them, against the bad guys, against the, 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 the Persians, okay? And conquered the world. So it's functional, it's useful. Fallen humanity will go for it every time. Because you could be the biggest loser in the world, but you're part of the good group. So that rubs off on you, okay? Anyway. Um, so when he says of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, the Hebrews, all these things, it's a, it's a, all of it is superlative. All of it is superlative. All of it is just the greatest of the greatest of the greatest, as far as he's concerned. Any Benjamite would say the same thing. Um, but a Judahite would say the same thing. A Levite would say the same thing about their particular tribe. Okay. Now, with respect to this, it is interesting, of course, the unified nation of Israel only existed historically under... Saul, David, and Solomon. So when he says, of the nation of Israel, he's boasting about a nation that technically doesn't even exist anymore. But it's promised to be restored. And he's living in that promise. It was promised to be restored eschatologically under the new covenant. So there is a nation that is promised to be restored. And, and I think we're clear on this, just in case. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 um, this is pretty easy to prove. Second Samuel chapter seven, when uh, God is pronouncing the Davidic covenant, there's a lot of details in this, but he, uh, he tells David here, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. 
Now, David has many wives at this point and several sons, but the, his heir is not yet born. Solomon is not yet born, and he hasn't had his Bathsheba failure yet. I will raise up uh, your son, and I will, he will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. See, this is Solomon in this context, not Jesus. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. All right, so that's the order. Saul, David, Solomon. And the, and the kingdom is going to be a Davidic kingdom through Solomon. That's the promise. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And it is. It is the Davidic Solomonic throne, which is uh, significant for the Davidic covenant. Likewise, uh, we see it played out then when Solomon goes off the deep end in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, um, you can read the first eight verses if you like. They're pretty ugly. Um, But when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away. And, uh, yeah, Solomon loved many foreign women, along with his first wife, the daughter of Pharaoh, and, uh, and this. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. And um, anyway, he goes to idol worship. He starts worshiping these false gods. He's doing all this evil. He builds high places for Hamash, for Moab, all this stuff. All right, so verse 9, the Lord was very angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Really, Solomon dies the sin unto death. Okay, But that does not void the Davidic covenant. And it does not void. God is, is, even though he's angry, he has mercy for the sake of David. That's spelled out here. And, and so God had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. There's going to be civil war. And the kingdom is going to be rent apart. The unified nation of Israel only lasted through Saul, David, Solomon. Okay? Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king, and first thing that happens, Jeroboam splits the kingdom and takes ten tribes away from from Rehoboam. All right. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And guess what one tribe that is? Benjamin. It's the tribe that Saul is boasting about, that David, uh, that uh, Paul is boasting about. Okay? He's from the faithful tribe. He's from the, the faithful tribe. All right. 
So the unified nation of Israel only existed historically under kings Saul, David, and Solomon. And yet it's this first item on his boast of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews. Okay? It was promised to be restored eschatologically under the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And we should be familiar with this because we taught it in the Jeremiah series. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And who's the new covenant with? With the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. That's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And they're promised they're going to be reunited. They're going to be restored. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Notice, after he opens up talking about Israel and Judah, he then unifies them and he calls them simply the house of Israel after those days. They're going to be a single house when Jesus returns. All 12 tribes united again. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this is what they have to look forward to. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And, of course, Saul of Tarsus was hell-bent on becoming the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is what they have to look forward to. All right. National sin, by the way, not personal sins. Now here Paul uses genos rather than ethnos because the Jews remain the chosen race but are presently without a nation. So they are a nation without a nation. They are a race without a nation. And so this is what we talk about when we have different um, vocabulary studies related to genos and ethnos. And these are the things that we argue about to this day when we have ethnic studies, (laughs) ethnos studies which is nations, but not every ethnicity has a nation. Okay, A lot of times they get conquered and they have to live in somebody else's nation, even though they might still call themselves a nation. You know, the Comanche nation uh, used to raid places around here and caused a lot of trouble. Okay, The Navajo nation, see, which we have uh, one member here at Austin Bible Church is a part of that nation, part of his heritage, part of his upbringing. Okay? You have people groups that they identify with a race, they identify with an ethnicity, but they no longer exercise sovereignty over a land, over boundaries, and, uh, and their language no longer calls the shots in, uh, in a particular geography. See? And this is all biblical and all part of the, what, uh, how God controls history. In any event, if you want more on that, we can... Uh, explore that on other occasions. In fact, I think there's going to be um, a lot of that coming up in Hebrews when we talk about the blessings of our, of our uh, priesthood that have nothing to do with earthly life, have nothing to do with our race or our parentage or our genealogy um, in any event. So, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Boy, what a fun tribe to boast about. You know, if you were from Issachar or Zebulun or Gad, I mean, most of those tribes, we know very little about them because they never produced a hero, they never produced a judge or a, a great leader or, you know, 
and so forth. But Benjamin supplied Israel's first king. In fact, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, they had the throne before the house of David took the throne, before Judah received the scepter that Judah was promised. So the tribe of Benjamin supplied Israel's first king and was promised prophetically to supply ravenous wolves. I'm curious how much of Genesis 49-27 was in Saul's mind when he started ravaging the church of God. I expect he thought he was fulfilling prophecy. That he was serving the Lord. Can you be so wrapped up in your zeal and your zealot crusade that you even commit murder in the name of God? And you think you're serving God in doing so? Yes. The Bible says that's what happens and history has given us many examples of that. So, so again, this is point two, or sub-point two under point B. The tribe of Benjamin supplied Israel's first king, 1 Samuel 9, 21, and was promised prophetically to supply ravenous wolves. Genesis 49, 27, I think we see it applied in Acts 8, 3 and Acts 9, 1. Benjamin proved to be the only tribe loyal to the house of David. You know, one thing you can, there's a lot of negative things you can say about dogs, but loyalty is a feature of, uh, of dogs and wolves and, and all the rest. Even wolves, you know wolves mate for life? Isn't that amazing? In the whole animal kingdom? Not many animals do that. All right. First um, Kings eleven thirty one through thirty six, uh, which we actually saw not, uh, a few minutes ago. Along with that, First Kings twelve verses twenty one through twenty four that stipulate Benjamin, Benjamin being the uh, the loyal tribe. Okay, I'm out of time. Uh, this is where we'll pick up Sunday, Lord willing. We have your painting. Let me just grab. You know, at first, no, I want to spend some time with this. Let me grab Genesis and give you something to chew on between now and Sunday. Genesis 49, 27. Israel on his deathbed is pronouncing prophecies to his sons. And it's, it's significant in, uh, in this. Of course, Judah gets his scepter in verse 10. In fact, Judah's got a long paragraph, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all related to Judah. And then uh, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph. Um, finally get to Benjamin, the baby, the last verse. Verse 20, and one single verse. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. Wow, there's some prophecy. And... Uh, Here's Saul of Tarsus, the ravenous wolf, in Acts 8, 3 and Acts 9, 1. We'll look at those Sunday morning and I think you'll see the, uh, the imagery on that. Okay? Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for your grace and faithfulness. Father, give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.